Hey there, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of The Dark Parade. I am your host, Bo, for these proceedings, and uh, we are wrapping up a month-long look at 80 slasher movies, and it's been a wonderful time. I've had <laughs> an excellent uh, sort of the tour back through some of the movies that I remember watching as I was younger, uh, enjoying them on a different level this time, digging deeper into the production of these movies and what these movies are about. And it's been a really fun time, and uh, I've been lucky enough to have some great hosts for it, so uh, I hope that will uh, continue into next month. But we'll talk about that on the other end of this conversation, because even though we have reached the end of the line, it doesn't mean we're stopping. This is... Uh, uh, the episode I intentionally held back for the final one because it is my conversation with Jerry Cortez, a.k.a. Mr. Venom, who uh, helped start all of this with uh, back-to-back appearances when we talked about Psycho and Psycho 2 way back in the first episode of The Dark Parade. And he's uh, incredibly uh, articulate, he is uh, a, a wealth of knowledge about the the process of filmmaking. He works in the industry himself, so he brings that expertise to it. And we just have a great time chatting. Uh, I am always, always, always bowled over when I have the opportunity to have him on. Uh, and I've resolved that we will do that more often because uh, he's just not on enough. So, uh, Hell Knight is a seminal movie for me. We talk about this a little bit on the show, but I, and I'll tell the story, or I'll hold off on telling the story um, until you hear it there about how I wrote a version of Hell Knight, but that also happened. Um, the thing that uh, really fires my imagination about Hell Knight, I saw it in a formative year. It's a movie that, uh, as, as you'll hear us discuss, isn't necessarily a great slasher movie, but it's a really significant slasher movie for me. And I really adore it on one hand. It also recognizes its flaws on the other, but we'll get into all that. We're, we're going to talk about how it was shot, uh, the, the circumstances of, of why certain elements of the movie were uh, a little shoddier and some are better and the actors and all that stuff. We give Hell Knight its day in court, for sure. Or night in court, uh, as the case may be. But uh, anyway, enough out of me. Let's get to the conversation, because I'm just going to keep telling you how uh, we talked about all this fun stuff. Uh, I'll shut up. Here's all the fun stuff we talked about. Here's me and Jerry talking about Hell Knight. I'll see you on the other side. All right, folks. Uh, as, as threatened, as warned, as prophesied, I'm back again with uh, the guy who kind of started all of this off, and it's crazy that we haven't done a show together since then, um, or at least not a, a dark parade, but it's Mr. Venom himself, Jerry Cortez. Uh, what is up, man? Greetings and salutations, my friend. Yeah, doing doing really, really well and really happy to be with you again. Uh, we haven't worked together since uh, you guessed it on one of my shows uh, a couple of months ago when we talked about 1954's Them. Right. And uh, so, yeah, this is a long time coming, my friend. And that went so badly that we just <laughs> refused to record for a while until the dust had settled. 
Um, no, that was really fun, and and I think I'm coming back pretty soon. That's what I hear. That is yeah. the rumor. Yeah, I just found out today, so that's exciting. That is exciting because it's a movie that I have a lot of fondness for, probably inappropriately. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but we'll t- we'll tease that later on. Yep. Um, first of all, to get this piece of it out of the way, if occasionally I lose consciousness during this recording. The reason is that uh, I was walking my dog the other day, and before I could stop him, he ate an entire baby rabbit carcass. Yikes. I know. And <laughs> is currently apparently processing this thing, which has resulted in s- some rubber tire gas coming out of this dog. Mm that is some of the worst aromas I've ever smelled in my entire life. And earlier today, this has nothing to do with anything. It's just a story I want to tell. So earlier today, I'm taking the dog for a walk again, and now I'm on a high alert because my stupid dog will eat anything. Mm. And I don't want to reap the whirlwind that comes, the gastrointestinal whirlwind that, that this is going to create. And this stupid dog, I have to yank him away from trying to eat just a smush squirrel on the road. <laughs> and I think what I've learned is that he's just an adventurous eater. As most uh, canines probably are. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it's taken some getting used to. I, I've been a cat guy for a long time, and having a dog, it's a, it's a different world uh, of just random crap that they will eat like every now and again i'll just see him chewing on something i realize like oh he's just eating a thumbtack like an idiot oh, you're right <laughs> i'm like oh my goodness that the fact that this dog has made it this far is a shock it's like it's like having an infant i presume um <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't have one of those but i got a real dumb dog yeah. uh <laughs> So that has nothing to do with Hell Knight, but uh, I, I felt no, like... Hell Knight for your dog, anyway, maybe, or Hell Knight for you having to deal with it. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's certainly a stinky night. Um, so I always like to start this <laughs> with not just dog stories, but also is sort of your first encounter with the movie Hell Knight. Like, when when did you run across this little bit of '80s wonderfulness? Well, this is one of the few theatrical early 80s slashers that I did not see in theaters. Um, Obviously, I was very young, well under the appropriate age for these movies. But I had some older cousins back then, females, actually, uh, some female older cousins that would take me with them to go see things like My Bloody Valentine, Hell Night, Friday the 13th Part 2, things like that. So I actually, I got a pretty good uh, theatrical horror education early on. But this one, unfortunately, I did not get a chance to see in theaters. But I did watch it the following year when it got its VHS release. So it would have been sometime in 82. I would have watched it with those same cousins because uh, they, they are a big part of uh, 
making me who I am today as far as the horror fan and cinephile. I mean, they they kind of indoctrinated me with that, along with my parents and other members of my family. But when it came to horror specifically, it was these uh, two female cousins that kind of turned me on to most of the great stuff, you know, from the late 70s and early 80s. So, so yeah, 1982 VHS released. Uh, I, I would have been one of the first to rent this from my local video store waiting for it to come out. After hearing the stories some people were talking about. And plus, it, it stars my first horror crush in Linda Blair. So oh. it was a no-brainer that I was going to be renting this right away. And absolutely loved it. Adored it from first watch. Um, obviously, my eyes are a little bit more mature uh, as uh, the years have gone on. So my opinion hasn't drastically changed on the movie so much as I can be objective with judging certain parts of it. Whereas when I was 12 years old, it was just, this movie is fucking awesome, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Now I can dissect it a little bit more, um, you know, adaptly now, adeptly now, excuse me. And, um, you know, I can I can see its flaws. I can see why maybe it's not, you know, the classic that I feel it should be. But, I mean, this is... The, <laughs> This is the sheer definition of a guilty pleasure for me. I, I, I've loved this movie from day one, and even watching it again this week, it just reminded me how, A, imperfect the film is, and B, how much I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I saw it real early as well. It's got such a great cover, or the, the VHS, yeah. and the, the poster as well. It's, it's an incredible horror poster. Yeah, it really is. Really nice oil painting. Yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, which if you haven't seen it, ladies and jelly spoons, you should absolutely uh, Google or Bing or whatever it is that you deviants do to find images of things. <laughs> Go to DeviantArt and type in Hell Knight. And there's, there, it, it's like you said, it's kind of this oil painting of Linda Blair on the mm-hmm. gates of uh, Garth Manor. And oh, it's so good. And I saw this when I was, again, too young. I think you and I are very similar in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is that nobody was at the wheel in terms of what we were watching. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody was intervening and and trying to make good decisions. So, uh, and weirdly, I had a cousin. She didn't show me Hell Knight, but when I was. Uh, 11 I want to say whenever Gremlin, Gremlins came out she took me to see Gremlins mm-hmm. which at the time you know is a P- PG-13 movie I think or one of the movies that in- inspired PG-13 and mm-hmm. uh, and I was probably eh, if not too young for Gremlins certainly on the on the cusp of that mm-hmm. and yeah but she didn't care Amy Beth didn't give a damn she was <laughs> She was she was happy to have somebody to come along who was like, oh my god, those puppets are great. Um, but yeah, so I saw Hell Knight pretty early on. I was at least fifth or sixth grade. I I would have seen this by, and the reason I know that is because right around sixth grade, I was in a class where I had a creative writing assignment, and one of the first things I ever wrote creatively. And, uh, you know, in a not not necessarily illustrious career, but a semi-professional <laughs> career of writing, uh, you know, I've written 
screenplays and books and all kinds of stuff, one of the very first things that I've, I ever wrote was a sequel to Hell Knight for this class. And, or not even a sequel, I take that back. It was a novelization, only it was like, you know, three pages long. So it was a pretty thin novelization. But it was that, it was like I was so captured uh, by Hell Knight that I was like, I need to put this on paper and share it with the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I have a lot of fondness for this movie because it was, it was one of the, probably one of the first slashers I ever really responded to. Hmm. Um, which is strange because I mean, Halloween for sure. I had seen Halloween prior to hell night and I, I love that movie. But there were a lot of slashers that came along that I wasn't really that captivated by. But Hell Knight was a different kind of animal. Uh, I really liked it. I think, in retrospect, it's because it traffics in a lot of very classic tropes. Uh, like, you know, here's the the mansion that's been abandoned. And there, there's almost this sort of Lovecraftian kind of vibe to it not the cosmic horror stuff but the other side of lovecraft which is just all about you know families inbreeding to the point that they're living in the basement and producing horrific offspring like uh what the thing at the doorstep that kind of lovecraft sure and yeah i think it's really kind of wonderful um but but it's not I mean, we'll get into this. I don't think it's a great movie. It just means a lot to me. Exactly. I, oh, that's exactly how I explain it to people. I would I would never, ever say that this is a good movie or even try to convince anyone that this is a quote-unquote good movie. But it's just, if you watch it at the right time and you've got the right mindset going into it and it resonates with you, it turns into an instant classic, which is exactly what it did with me. Yeah, yeah, um... And so the movie comes out in 1981. It was originally released on August 7th. I think uh, a couple of weeks later, it it was widely released. Um, Movie cost about a million and a half dollars, went a little bit over budget in its production. It was originally a million dollar movie, and then uh, it turned out that some reshooting needed to be done. And, you know, so rounded out about 1.4, 1.5 million. Um, Domestically made about. 2.3 2.3 million so a moderate success and then once you fig- figure in over the years all the VHS rentals and DVD purchases and Blu-ray purchases and that kind of thing like Hell Knight really found itself on home video I believe mm-hmm. and yeah for the most part the, I mean, if I remember correctly for the most part the critics were not favorable with Hell Knight but I do remember reading some reviews in 81 and 82 where surprisingly some critics actually enjoyed it actually said that it was a, a much better film than it deserved to be I think uh, was the exact quote um, but yeah most critics still kind of you know panned it when it came out yeah and I don't know that that's wrong <laughs> uh, but again there there are elements of this movie that I think set it apart from, you know, uh, I was going to say Slumber Party Massacre or something like that, but, you know, that's probably unfair. It's... (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of an interesting movie. But, uh, but, you know, the the kind of 
you know, uh, the spawn of Friday the 13th and Halloween and all, and all of that. Uh, and we've talked about a number of slashers this, this month on, on Dark Parade. Like, we've talked about April Fool's Day and Happy Birthday uh, to Me and um, Hell Night. And, you know, all these movies that I think are kind of unusual in the slasher genre. And I think what I've learned about myself in, in discussing all of these movies is that I don't necessarily like the standard formula slasher, but I like movies that play around with with the tropes. And mm-hmm. and even in 81, like this is only a handful of years after Halloween, only a year after Friday the 13th, um, that you really get uh, you know, a, 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 that wave of, of movies kind of capitalizing on those films. Um, but this has a little bit of panache. And, um, yeah. Now, this movie definitely has a style that most 80s low-budget slashers couldn't duplicate. The mere fact that they were able to film on location at a mansion, um, at least for the exterior stuff, mm. uh, just kind of elevates the movie a little bit. Um, obviously having Linda Blair in there, you know, obviously, you know, coming off an Oscar nominated, well, not coming off of, but, you know, years after an Oscar nominated performance from her, that's going to add a little bit more credibility to it. So, yeah, I remember going into this being really excited, um, mainly for those reasons. Yeah, yeah. Uh, All right. Well, let's get into the story of this thing and and we'll try to keep it reasonably snappy because I don't think we're going to have like a psycho level discussion of like scene by scene let's talk about you know the 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 owl imagery of hell night um (laughs) we're not going to talk about classism in hell night no (laughs) right right not not the deepest film one might say um but it it so you you kind of open up on a, a big uh sorority row kind of party in the streets it's in the typical 80s like there's toilet paper in the trees and everybody's drunk out in the roads it's you know mass hysteria (laughs) and we are introduced to uh peter bennett who is the head of this uh fraternity alpha sigma rho is the fraternity and it basically is telling uh the crowd assembled there like hey we've got these four pledges we're gonna make them stay in garth manor until dawn on hell night as part of their initiation and so in very short order we have an entire parade of people that go to garth manor uh and i like the fact that this movie gets off the ground pretty fast it's like no screwing around we'll we'll introduce all the characters on the back end and there's uh marty who is linda blair there is sort of her paramour, uh, Jeff, as played by Peter Barton. There is Denise, as played by Suki Goodwin, who only ever did this and maybe one other thing, which seems kind of crazy to me because all the other movies, like, you know, we've talked about April Fool's Day and My Bloody Valentine and movies like that this month, and those casts went on to do a lot of work some of them a lot of them still working today and the fact that Suki Goodwin was kind of you know one and done blew blew my mind a little bit and yeah, then literally one and done yeah she, this was her only film she did one other tv series that was it yeah that's nuts to me but 
but based on the commentary and some of the the stories it sounded like she didn't necessarily have a great time shooting no. this that you know it, it, despite the fact that i think she's pretty good as kind of the sex pot in the movie that she, <laughs> that just wasn't her thing like she i don't think she was very comfortable doing any of that stuff by the sound of it no not at all i mean from what i understand the role did call for some nudity and she absolutely refused no no nudity and no simulated sex which explains the uh subpar let's say love scene between uh, her and Vince Van Patten but we'll get to that yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, so and then Vincent Van Patten is, is her would-be boyfriend Seth, who is is one of those faces that feels like he popped up everywhere in the eighties. <laughs> What's funny is that I'm a I'm a hardcore poker fan, so I've been watching Vince Van Patten as the host on the World Poker Tour for almost twenty seasons now. I think they're up to like season eighteen or something like that. And he's been he's been a co-host on that show the entire run. So no going kidding. back, yeah, going back to this and seeing young Vince Van Patten here, especially here where he's still um he's still a tennis pro at this point in his life. So he's obviously in shape. You know, we see that he's in really good shape and everything. And I only knew his tennis uh, from the stories that he told on the World Poker Tour. So so to see him this young. Um, was definitely uh, kind of a little jarring to me, if you will, just because I'm used to, like, the older, more debonair Vince Van Patten. You know, he wears a suit, you know, when he's hosting this show. He talks very eloquently, things like that. He's definitely not the surfer that we see in this movie. Yeah, but I think he was uh, actually a surfer, is yes. my understanding. So, And, in fact, uh, they kind of rewrote that scene to lean into the fact that, you know, he, he knew what he was talking about and had... Mm -hmm. Uh, some experience along those lines but um yeah so anyway these four knuckleheads are, are being <laughs> taken by uh uh peter bennett the uh the fraternity president and his guy friday uh scott as played by jimmy sturdivant and they are uh going to spend the night at garth manor um he basically unlocks this you know, old school cask of Amontillado style padlock and <laughs> opens up the gates and leads them inside or leads them inside. It's kind of a, uh, an Aaron Sorkin style walk and talk. <laughs> As he's taken up to the mansion and it's this giant monologue where he's like, okay, here's what happened. There was, uh, the owner of this place, who was the great grandson of a gold prospector named Raymond Garth. And he strangled his wife to death and then murdered three of his children because they were all incredibly deformed. And then afterwards he hanged himself, but they never found the body of the youngest child, Andrew. And so or the dad, apparently, because um, when he tells the story, he says that, Andrew killed his wife, two of his kids, and then killed himself. But then he says the police only found three bodies. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's almost like a throwaway line. Like, if you're not paying attention to it, you might miss it. But yeah, it's almost like giving you the hint right there of what's about to happen. It's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, the movie does a nice job of sort of setting up the ending of the movie pretty well, including the things like, you know, the fact that 
this guy Peter's got the keys to this place, which factors in a couple of times in the course of the movie. And um, anyway, so yeah, uh, the the kid watched these murders take place, and the legend is he's living somewhere in Garth Manor, and that's you know the ghost story, the town ghost story that they tell one another. And so, you know, he says, look, there's no, there's no electricity, there's no phones, you're just gonna go inside, spend the night. And meanwhile, Peter and his buddy Scott are setting about to scare the hell out of the, the pledges. You know, they've got, you know, all kinds of mannequins and one-way mirrors and all kinds of crazy stuff designed to, to freak him out. Um, and so uh, there's also a lady named May who is along uh, that, you know, kind of showed up at the beginning of the movie. Um, and she is the first to be killed uh, as yeah, she's and, off wandering around. And a kill that we'll never see. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a real off, off the screen kind of thing like it's uh is that where the stone opens up uh just yeah just uh just before that is when they open up the stone and go in yeah yeah so the, the the story of this kill is basically um they shot a much more elaborate decapitation that we'll never see because they lost the footage even in a two in a 2017 interview with uh tom de simone he actually says he doesn't know where the footage is and he's very upset about it that he literally it would have been the best kill in the film um that they could have put on like the dvd release or something like that but someone lost the elements so it's gone forever but yeah they actually had it was going to be kind of like um because they knew they wanted to do a decapitation going into it but obviously, you know, this is the year after one of horror's most famous decapitations in the original Friday the 13th. So they didn't want to do a standard decap like we've seen before. So what they decided they wanted to do was actually have um, Andrew Garth, the killer, actually holding her head up. And then so that he could decapitate her and her body would fall to the ground. Um, apparently, they shot it two or three times. Uh, the director was incredibly happy with it. Um, but obviously the producers basically, once they saw it, said, there's no way we'll let you put that in the movie. We're not going to get a, an R rating if you put that in there. So, yeah, so that footage is gone forever. But according to the director, it was a spectacularly well uh, shot scene that looked awesome. And we'll never see it. You know, this is why I like having you here. Not just because <laughs> you can disappoint us all. Uh, oh, with yeah. Story. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but i the more packed with trivia this episode is the happier i'm gonna be so uh yeah so after this girl may gets it um there is uh, uh scott who climbs up to the roof because he's gonna hang this dummy and this is actually it, it's a real easy you know camera trick or editing trick really but when he gets killed it's basically andrew garth popping up and grabbing his head and twisting it and it's just a quick edit where you see scott from the front and then his head is turned but as the turn is happening you cut to the reverse shot 
and it's him with his clothes on backwards, you know, (laughs) just turning his head and spitting out a little blood. But I really like it. I think it really works. Hey, it's effective. That's all that matters. (laughs) Yeah, it's really fun. And uh, then Peter is going to check on his buddy Scott, um, you know, because naturally he's like, hey, where is this knucklehead that is supposed to be doing all my work for me? And discovers that, oh, there's... He goes up to the roof and finds that the dummy is not suspended on the wire. So he starts pulling up the wire to see what's on the other end of it. And uh, I thought this was interesting. That when they originally shot it, you couldn't tell that the wire was moving. And so (laughs) they painted uh, the wire different colors intermittently so that you could actually see the motion of the wire being drawn back in. (laughs) And again, just one of those things that I'm sure nobody thought about until they were, you know, looking through the camera on set and realized like, Oh, it doesn't look like he's actually pulling anything up. Uh, But sure enough, he pulls up uh, his, his friend Scott (laughs) and Peter, not being what you would call a benevolent character in the movie, decides, to hell with everybody else, I'm getting out of here. But he decides to cut through a Shining-style hedge maze, (laughs) uh, which had to be brought in. Like, that didn't actually exist in the manor, so that, yeah, they had to basically bring it in and make it. And based on the way they described it, it was they would shoot like this scene with Peter running through this maze. And then when that scene was done, they would be like, all right, Linda Blair, uh, your turn. And they would just bring her in and then run her through the maze. And so they could shoot all of that stuff at the same time, which, you know, that's how you make a movie. But I, I do think it's kind of funny that they were just lining them up and like, all right, run. <laughs> Uh, but we do see that Peter is then uh, murdered by uh, a, a killer who impales him with a, a like a garden scythe, and and that's also kind of when we realize, oh hey, there is more than one person doing hmm. business. And uh, so anyway, that, that's all going on outside. But let's get inside to our main characters who um, are kind of pairing off like, uh, you know, the, the inside is all lit by candles. There are cobwebs draped everywhere. It's, uh, you know, this giant Victorian style um, kind of interior, which, as you pointed out earlier, was different than the exterior. The, the, all this stuff was not shot um, at the... Uh, can't remember the name of the mansion now but anyway it was Uh, kimberly crest yeah kimberly crest mansion um which they were allowed to shoot on the roof and they were allowed to shoot in the yard and all over the grounds no actually they were not allowed to shoot on the roof the owners told them that for insurance purposes they could not let them up there uh so the the roof is actually a set that they built in glendale california oh no kidding i thought they were on the roof of that thing okay yeah Uh, they were on a roof but not the roof yeah (laughs) Um, yeah, so uh, all the interiors, though, are, are basically m- a much more modern house, but it, like, you know, still a very yeah. 
a very uh, extravagant home in LA. Yeah, it's a, this is probably one of my bigger complaints about the set design of this movie is that the exterior shots are just gorgeous. Like Kimberly Crest is an amazing property, not just the house, but all the land around it. Like this movie doesn't actually give you a good idea of how much property there is because they, they make it seem when, you know, when watching the film that like you could run from the front uh, door to the gate. Whereas in reality, the, the gate is actually a full mile away from the front door of the manor. So they actually had to do a lot of like fancy camera work and, and relighting areas uh, different ways so that it made it look like the gate was actually near the house. But I, I've actually been to Kimberly Crest. Um, it's in Redlands, California. Uh, I forget the actual street it was on, damn it. Prospect Drive. It's on Prospect Drive in Redlands, California. Uh, about 21 or so years ago, I actually dated a girl uh, very briefly from Redlands. And uh, yeah, uh, she uh, she knew of it, not from the movie, but she just knew of because it's, a, it's, a, it's actually a landmark. Um, it's a protected landmark in Redlands now and was back then as well, even when it was a private presidence. But uh, yeah. I mean, it takes almost half a day to take the full tour. It, it is a gigantic property, uh, probably a good, I don't know, 20, 25 acres. It, it's, a, it's a lot of land. And this is the only movie to have been shot there, I think? Yes, because after this movie was shot, the owners actually moved. They sold the property and moved. And right after uh, the production of the film, right after the sale of the home, um, the city of Redlands turned it into a uh, museum. So now the house is a museum, but the property outside can be rented for like events, like weddings and receptions and whatnot. But the inside is a museum. Huh. Uh, yeah, I thought I had that right. But that's, it's a fascinating house. You know, it looks great. Uh, it reminds me a little bit, even though the this is certainly more gothic looking than... Um, but I, I'm thinking of Steve Miner's house, like the house from house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's a much more modest kind of home. But they both have this feel like the exteriors are like, well, that house just looks spooky. Mm -hmm. You know, um, <laughs> and I, I man, you, a set goes so such a long way towards setting the mood and creating the atmosphere. And I think this movie is actually shot pretty well as as well. Es sure. especially the exteriors though it's it's really well done i didn't realize that the gate was that far away that's again some yeah delicious movie magic oh and for more trivia uh for you uh that gate did not exist when they started uh making the film they had to build that gate for the movie oh that's great oh i love <laughs> stuff like that so much so yeah all right so inside the not garth manor but is garth manor you get it um mm -hmm. <laughs> they uh, start to run into some of the pranks set up by Peter and Scott before, you know, they were murdered horribly, which is a lot of screaming and they find some speakers and uh, poor Linda Blair at one point is, is beset by a ghost um, that is <laughs> zombie ghost, the zombie ghost coming at her. And the, the poor guy who played the zombie ghost died before the movie got released i think yeah he also played uh andrew uh garth yeah so yeah he yeah so yeah i mean he and he doesn't even get a credit like on imdb like it, it it's actually a little bit of a hunt to find that guy's name but yeah 
um, he passed away from a car accident before the movie was released. Yeah, that's a real shame. He did a fine job. But, um, yeah, so uh, Seth and Denise, a.k.a. Vince Van Patten and Suki Goodwin, decide that they're going to go do some quaaludes and booze and have some sexy time. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is uh, the PG version of sexy time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all done in silhouette, but I'm, you know, when we were doing lost after dark, there was, uh, we had the discussion with the producers about like, Hey, if we're going to do kind of an 80 style slasher movie, should we have some nudity? And I have to admit, I like, this is all my fault for people who saw that movie and, and were like, why are there tits? That's, <laughs> that's my fault. Uh, and it's because I was like, I don't want to make some, you know, poor 20-year-old actress or, you know, 22, 23, whatever, at the beginning of an acting career make uh, or have to do a scene where, you know, she she's going topless because in the age of the internet, that shit lives forever. And it's not just like, oh, if you can get your hands on a copy of this movie, you can see so-and-so's boobs. It that's It's out there. It is forever. And if they go on to have a career doing other stuff it, it may haunt them and also it just feels a little exploitative and blah 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 in in modern context like i'm not i'm not giving 80s movies a hard time because that was the time yep. but uh that by that same token though there is a scene with two girls making out because the producers were like well if we're not gonna have nudity we gotta have something sexy <laughs> so that is why there is not nudity but there is a lesbian kiss in it mm-hmm. you know just a little and some shadowy sex play <laughs> yeah yeah and but yeah so hell knight does the you know the silhouette and but it's i don't have a problem with it because you know yeah. you're seeing the legs you know up in the air and you kind of see her in profile and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and Although, if you listen to the director and star commentary and that kind of thing, I feel like their conversation is a, a bit prudish about it. <laughs> um, where they're like, you just don't need it. It just takes away from the movie and, and so forth. And I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. Because, you know, these are two young people who are doing a lot of drugs and, and just having a good time. So I'm not knee-jerk against nudity in that situation. That makes some sense. But... Um, but anyway, so they, they, Seth does this whole bit about surfing and, you know, squats on top of her for a while. It's, it's all very silly. And, uh, but then they, yeah, then they have sex. He goes to the bathroom. Um, and she gets grabbed by, you know, a deformed person. And so Seth comes back to bed he and it's a very godfather kind of thing where he slips into bed is like what what's this throws back <laughs> the blanket and it's not uh denise it's may the the girl that he, he doesn't even know who she is really but just finds a severed head in the bed with him and he remembers her from the party because he does mention uh, i think he actually says that sorority bitch or something like that his... So he recognizes her, but he doesn't, he doesn't like personally know her. He has a great scream there. 
Yeah, <laughs> that's a, funny. My wife and I laughed our asses off at that scream. <laughs> it's a good scream, you know. I mean, it's very high pitched. It's it. One might go so far as to call it a girlish scream, mm-hmm. but it a hundred percent is like it. A lot. It's better than a you know the typical. Ah! It's it's really uh, comes from the the duodenum, and. <laughs> So he he runs downstairs, tells everybody like, "Oh my God, there's a a head there. We got to get out of here. Denise is missing." And so they all run to the gate to try to go out and get help, but of course there are no keys. And so Seth decides, "Well, I'm gonna climb this fence, even though it's got apparently razor sharp spikes at the top of it." <laughs> great judgment you know in a situation like this i don't hold it against seth no no honestly you're right i mean i would probably i mean well i mean not my fat ass but i mean if i were in shape i would probably attempt it too in that situation yeah i mean what's a what's a couple of you know scratches and cuts to to get out of there alive you know yeah even with not being in shape even a little bit i'd at least give it a (laughs) shot I, like, I wouldn't make it very far, and I'd make everybody else, like, look away just out of, you know, shame. Uh, like, we can't watch this. Holy shit. Can you, he's not even getting halfway up there. This is embarrassing. Why, why didn't you just uh, yeah, go I'm the, I'm the idiot that would fight. You know, I, I am, <laughs> I'm too big and old to run from anything. So, yeah, if I see Andrew Garth coming at me, I'm the kind of idiot that's going to sit there and try to fight him. And, and then probably get my head punched off my shoulders. Whatever, you know. <laughs> right, a real Jason <laughs> takes Manhattan move where there you go. <laughs> just one punch and off goes the noggin. Um, uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't have those kind of smarts. I would do the the Seth scream, <laughs> and then I would just run until I had a heart attack. He would, uh, he would, they'd never lay a hand on me. <laughs> 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 so. Uh, but sure enough, Seth gets over the feds. He like cuts his his arm uh, trying to get over as well as his hands. But he does make it over, and he says, "Hey, I'm gonna come back for you guys." Because Linda Blair, you know, in in sort of a, a reference to the cover, or well, the cover is kind of taken from this scene, but it's her trying to scale the fence as well, and she's just not going anywhere, uh, weighed down by her boobs, no doubt, and. Uh, <laughs> So he's just like, hey, I'll, I'll, I'm going to go get help and then I'll come back. And so off goes Seth and Jeff and Marty decide, well, we're going to have to go back inside and just kind of hunker down until he comes back uh, for with help. And so Seth goes to one of the frat houses, banks on the door, gets no luck there. So he has to take off uh, for town. Uh, one presumes um and meanwhile jeff and marty discover like they hear some tapping and realize like oh here's the body of this dude scott and they hear um a a scream and so is that right is a scream that draws jeff out because he's like hey we've got to go look for denise yeah, I believe so, yes. And so there, he's going to leave Linda Blair behind and go t- back into this hedge maze, which is what happens. And he finds the the corpse of the fraternity president, Peter, 
uh, impaled on the wall of this hedge maze. And <laughs> eagle-eyed fans will notice that apparently Andrew Garth um, pulled the sickle out, or the scythe, pulled the scythe out and then put it back in a different direction to prop the body up. Because right. the sickle's in a different position than it was when he got killed. Right, put it back <laughs> the other way, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so he runs off, but the camera does the little uh, lingering onto the hand of uh, of Peter so that we see, like, oh, he they're right in his hand or the keys to the gate and they could get away but he was too panicked and so he runs back to the house to tell marty like oh everybody else is dead it's got to be that crazy deformed andrew garth who is referred to by peter earlier as like is it gorped uh, uh yes yeah, so, yeah you're right it's some weird word like that bork or dork or bork or something like that yeah yeah <laughs> which is his shorthand for you know they've got you know mutations and uh developmental disorders <laughs> and that kind of thing yeah but he uses the word a number of times it's really striking and nobody else really <laughs> at, like at one point they're like is the, uh, do you think this is one of those gork kids and they're like yeah i guess it is um <laughs> now that you say that that makes a lot of sense so, uh, Jeff grabs a pitchfork, and so he and Marty just kind of hang out in a bedroom with this pitchfork, waiting for Seth to come back with help. But one of the things I really like about this movie as a whole is that our villains kind of have not just, you know, the tunnels we'll get to under, under the house... But just have little hidey holes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's uh, one of them g- coming up from the floor under a rug. <laughs> you know, just put, <laughs> put a rug over the hole. And I'm sure that was uh, the director's homage to Michael Myers under the bed sheet. Sure, yeah. It, he, he comes up and he's going to grab uh, Marty. Jeff ends up stabbing him with a pitchfork and he just goes back through the hole in the floor and and Jeff stupidly is like well let's go get him and it's like <laughs> come on man like from from a logistical point of view he's got the pitchfork now yeah, I mean granted it's sticking out of him but still yeah and it's funny too because it, he he makes the justification to go after him um, to Marty. He basically says, "Well, he knows this house better than we do." And I'm thinking to myself, "Wouldn't that be a reason to stay put? Because he knows the house better than you. He's just going to be waiting for you around the first dark corner." Yeah, yeah, that was odd. <laughs> it, it's a fine point, and one that Linda Blair, who is the more rational of the two in this uh, in, in this movie, should have been quick to point out but anyway instead she's like well if you're going then i'm going with you (laughs) and so they they end up going into a bunch of underground tunnels and i think this is really the point when i saw it as a kid that fired my imagination and this even though it turns out it's really just a set 
that <laughs> they keep like just all right we're gonna reverse the shot now you run through all right now we're gonna take a slightly different angle now you come through um <laughs> it's all just one thing but it still looks really cool and and there's something about a house with you know this series of tunnels under it that that i really dig oh yeah and they do a uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre style discovery of a, a, a table full of decomposing bodies, including Denise is in there and some old corpses and all kinds of stuff. I assume that's the family that was murdered the year before in the story, though why the bodies are still there is beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> eh, you know, it, it could medical... be random bodies too, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> right. Uh, just squatters. <laughs> that decided to use the the Garth Mansion as their home, uh, yeah. vacationing kids, whatever. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so they're obviously freaked out by this display, and then they see Andrew Garth coming towards them, and there's a chase through the tunnels, and there's a big fight. Jeff gets knocked down some stairs, and he gets his leg injured, and then he and uh, Linda Blair escaped though because there's like a, a hidden exit that they find so they get out and meanwhile in another part of the movie Seth makes it to the police station and uh, the police are fed up with fraternity pranks on this evening it's, it's got kind of a black Christmas vibe where they're like the cops just aren't having it yeah the worst some of the worst cinematic cops ever yeah, yeah. This guy shows up bloody, desperate, panting, and they're like, "Oh boy, here's another one." <laughs> and they they think that he's you know pulling a prank, and so, uh, and they're gonna throw him in jail for the night. They just to get him off the streets, one presumes, and he decides instead that he's going to steal a shotgun off a table full of weapons that they have handy <laughs> in an unlocked room. How convenient. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes out the window. So, you know, now he's <laughs> the, the one thing that the police station was good for was giving him weapons. <laughs> and so Seth grabs the shotgun, goes out the window and, and is, uh, on his way back to Garth Manor, thanks to some carjacking. Yeah, probably the first cinematic carjacking ever. Maybe so. <laughs> yeah, I, is that? I wonder if it I don't was... know. I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't necessarily hear anything about it, but I had never heard the term carjack until the late '80s. Growing up, so this is '81. I don't think it was a term yet. I'm not going to sit I'd literally sit here and say that it's the first one. It is the first one in, that I can think of in films, but I, I'm sure I haven't seen every movie ever made either. So yeah, that we need to do a scientific study of this. But yeah, it's but it's definitely go. early carjacking of <laughs> this desperate college kid with a shotgun just being like, yeah. "Give me your car." This is why I call these cops, the cops in this town, the worst. Because even if you don't believe a dr a drunk college kid. The guy that he carjacked was a middle-aged suit-and-tie guy. That guy had to have called the police or... It, obviously, this is before the days of cell phones, so he probably would have had to have found a pay phone or knocked at somebody's door. But the point is, when this kind of... When this type of individual, at least in the early 80s, you know, a white man, you know, middle-aged, fairly well-dressed in a suit-and-tie, when he walks in and says he got carjacked, the cops are going to take it seriously. So... 
Right. Why do the cops never? And, and on top of the fact that Seth even tells them, he tells the guy that he's jacking, oh, fine, call the cops and let them know we'll be at Garth Manor. And they still never show up. It's like, I, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I question the. Uh, that or maybe that suit and tie guy just didn't call the cops or maybe he's still walking to the police station today i don't know the thing we don't know is there's a truck full of cocaine <laughs> that he, he absolutely cannot go to the police about <laughs> hmm. Hmm. interesting so that uh that was in my novelization i you know, i was fixing some like plot it. holes along the way um uh, and yeah, the police are too busy trying to get at the bottom of who sold the shotgun. Probably got a got a bolo out on the shotgun. Not worried about the kid. Yeah. And you'd think the guy, the suit and tie guy, would have told them, "Yeah, the kid had a shotgun." Hmm. Two plus two? Maybe yeah. no. Okay. Huh, can you describe <laughs> the shotgun? Maybe it's the one we're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. And. Anyway, so Seth takes his stolen car and stolen shotgun back to Garth Manor, where he sees um, th- like a, a figure kind of run past him, and he he follows along with his shotgun, finds a bar uh, of the fence kind of bent out of place, and so he gets back into the manor that way, and he gets attacked by a dude and they're fighting back and forth and then in in what you presume is going to be the last moments of the movie and isn't quite he shoots this guy with the shotgun and blows him into the fountain mm-hmm. and then he you know the guy gets back up for a second he shoots him again and so <laughs> He runs back into the manor. He's like, hey, Jeff, Marty, good news. I killed the guy that was, you know, after us. He is now floating in a pool of his own blood and, you know, soupy water in this fountain that hasn't run for years. And uh, Jeff and Marty are, you know, thrilled to hear it. They're like, that's great. We'll be down in a second. <laughs> But unfortunately, before they could do that, uh, Seth gets grabbed by our other killer, and is Daddy. In, right, and is dragged off. And you hear, you hear a gunshot, and then it's quiet for a second, and then the shotgun just goes sliding across the floor, and there's silence. And Linda Blair is like, "I'm gonna go get the gun." And Jeff's like, no, 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 don't do it. It's a, it's a trap. And she's like, I don't care. I'm going to go get that gun. And so she kind of creeps down the steps, goes for the gun. Killer leaps out. She gets out of his grasp, uh, runs back upstairs to the bedroom. And then Papa Garth then grabs Jeff and throws him the hell out of a window. <laughs> which is pretty fun. It's not a great slasher death, but anybody getting thrown out of a window. I'm a big fan, in general, of the word defenestration. (laughs) And seeing it on screen always makes me happy. Uh, That probably says something about me, and I'll bring it up with my therapist. (laughs) 
but Marty ends up going out of the house through this hedge maze where she finds Peter and as she's freaking out about that his body falls on top of her uh, and then she realizes like oh shit the keys and has to pry him from his cold dead hands like it was a gun from Charles Charlton Heston's hands <laughs> and so she goes to the gate unlocks it finds the car outside but there are no keys so she has to hotwire it and which was established earlier in the movie that you know she's a mechanic and so forth mm-hmm. grew up in a family of mechanics so she hotwires the car starts driving away uh, backs into the fence which angles it down and then as she's backing up Papa Garth jumps on the hood of the car and is it Papa Garth or Andrew Garth? Andrew Garth is the one who's dead, right? No, Morris Garth is the son who was killed. So Andrew Garth is the dead. Okay, so sorry. Andrew Garth is the one on the car. Morris yep, Garth is the dead. giant. Yeah, exactly. So she ends up uh, basically ramming him into the broken fence that that has the spikes angled at her. It's a very like hammer Dracula kind of murder. Yes. Which I also really appreciate. Yeah. And then there is an absolutely fantastic death throw from our Papa Garth who <laughs> coughs up blood and chokes and makes the, the most hideous noises. And and then dies. And so, at, at, you know, kind of there ended the, mo- the movie. There's a shot of, like, the sun starts coming up. Linda Blair gets out of the car, realizing that it's no longer drivable, and just starts walking back towards town as, you know, credits start rolling and she cries. Yeah. Still no cops. <laughs> no. No. But It's the next damn morning and these cops have, still haven't shown up. You know, they're like, eh, we'll send somebody by after shift change. Uh, that poor suit and tie guy is still sitting at the station waiting for the cops to do something. Ugh. Can you describe yeah. your car? Yeah, it's got four wheels, two <laughs> doors. It's kind of gold. It's a sedan. Eh, you're going to have to be a little more specific. What was... It was stolen by a surfer dressed as a pirate. Come on. <laughs> you're going to have to be more specific than that. Damn it. <laughs> was, was there a shotgun behind the wheel? <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that that's kind of you know where the movie ends. Um, and it, all right, before we get into the the fun stuff, let, let's talk about the cast real quick because we've we've danced around it a little bit. But um, it's a pretty good cast for a slasher movie, if you ask me. Yes, absolutely. I think I mean for for what this movie could have turned into. Um, you know, I'm not going to say the the acting's Oscar worthy by any stretch of the imagination, but for what you would expect from a one million dollar 1981 slasher um, that barely played in 500 theaters back in '81, uh, I think they did a great job. Yeah, I think Linda Blair's, you know, it, this is kind of right before she did the uh, the the uh, centerfold, not centerfold, but the pictorial. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for for Wii magazine. Wii. And not 
W-E-E, uh, but O-U-I. Yeah. What's funny, too, is that she 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 tried to, she did that photo, from, from what I found online, she did that photo shoot to try to get out of doing genre films. She wanted to, like, get out of the, the young damsel in distress role and try to play, like, sexier roles and whatever, but it kind of backfired on her because she never really got too many triple a titles after that you know she was kind of relegated to b movies and even later on like b action movies like i remember her starring in a um late 80s action movie with um what's his name dirk benedict from the a-team mm -hmm. uh, the movie was called ruckus it's it's a, just a terrible action movie it's one of those like saturday afternoon movies you might catch on hbo or something um but yeah uh that photo shoot definitely did her a disservice and dating um what do you call it? Rick James probably doesn't help your career much either. No, 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 no. <laughs> or just your personal life in any way. And yeah. <laughs> you know, the thing that's interesting, I don't know if, if it's sort of, you know, causality or whatever that like, I don't know that the spread helped or harmed her career necessarily. It, I, I don't think it helped. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that it hurt it because it's just the nature of Hollywood and making movies and that kind of thing of like if you've got a lane it, it's the reason Bruce Campbell never became a bigger star you know it, it he was just a genre guy and th those are the roles he was offered and he was really good in those roles and outside of Sam Raimi throwing him in Spider-Man and that kind of stuff and the new you know Doctor Strange movie and that kind of stuff um that, all Sam Raimi, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it. You know, he was he was supposed to be Dark Man, and and that got shot down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it and other directors just didn't give him that triple A shot. And I think Linda Blair was kind of in the same boat, where you know she was a child actor, she was really good in The Exorcist, but then as time went on, she was kind of a scream queen, and that's what she was, and that was her lane. And nobody really gave her a lot of opportunities to break out of that, which is a shame. Yeah. Um, but but she's good in this, and and particularly towards the end of the movie, I think uh, you know when she's having to do that damsel in distress stuff, she's good at doing that. Um, and also having the kind of pluck, you know, I I don't know that she supplants Jamie Lee Curtis in my heart, but you know, you can tell that she's got a lot of pluck and that kind of thing. And, yeah, she's good, and uh, you know, v actually, Vince Van Patten I think is really fun and and silly and over the top and the kind of thing you need in this. I mean, he's basically playing himself, a California surfer. Right. I mean, wh why not? Ca right. D d yeah. If you cast it right, you you don't have to ask that much of your actors, and you go. and he's good. And I I feel the same way about Peter Barton. I don't think mm -hmm. he's exceptional in this, but I, as far as being that square-jawed good-looking lead yes totally fine I mean, he, you know if you look back at his career you see that he did a lot of soap operas and he's got that look he, he definitely has that male you know this the the square like you said the squared off jaw you know big blue eyes look of a soap opera star but um actually i mean I, I am a big fan of peter barton because he stars in my favorite slasher of all time and it is not hell night mind you it is, of course, Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Um, doesn't have a big role in it. You know, dies in the shower by getting his head crushed. You know, nothing too major. But 
um anyone that's in that movie i i tend to follow because you know i i uh, unapologetically call that movie my favorite slasher of all time yes halloween is great black christmas all the staples but, but it just for me the final chapter kind of it hit all the check marks for me i absolutely love it so yeah yeah no it's real good <laughs> that is a real good slasher yeah uh i don't know that's my favorite it's real good um yeah <laughs> yeah where's the corkscrew <laughs> That the addition of Crispin Glover is such a wild card in that movie, and it makes oh. everything like half a star better in it's every true. scene he's in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his dance. I'm sorry. I make fun of it all you like. I think it's goddamn spectacular. Yeah, I put it up. I put it up there with Ed Harris's dance in Creepshow. <laughs> I, right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Oh, and I love both those movies, and I love both these actors. So I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm kind of a cheese ball. Yeah. Oh <laughs> man. Now, I, yeah. All right. I, I, I need a super cut of just those things on a loop. <laughs> if you can somehow make it look like they're dancing together, we have that technology, oh. people. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we talked about Su- uh, Suki Goodwin, who did not do another feature besides this, but I, I, I think she's totally fine in this film yeah for what it is you know you know she's got that cool she's got that cool accent obviously has a great body very cute face i mean it works you know you know her role didn't wasn't exactly like the most um it didn't call for a whole lot of range or anything like that i mean i I thought she did fine i I didn't roll my eyes at any of her line deliveries so that's a plus yeah right right for her being the sort of second female lead of a movie called hell night totally fine um And I genuinely like uh, Kevin Brophy as Peter Bennett, the fraternity president. He is uh, smarmy and kind of a dick and a little too full of himself, but also does the fear stuff pretty well. Um, He's just good. He's a good actor in this. And um, it's it's fun to see, uh, you know, this actor like who wasn't in a ton of other stuff i mean he was but all kind of b movies Uh, he was i mean he actually what's funny is that uh this movie has one person who stars in my favorite slasher of all time kevin brophy actually stars in my favorite western of all time that being 1980s the long riders um it's a very obscure western but it ends with one of the most epic gunfights ever i absolutely love it but yeah this movie's great because there's a lot of like real life um brothers in it like randy and dennis quaid are both in it um who else there's a couple of other brothers that i can't think of off the top of my head but yeah if you ever get a chance folks and you like westerns uh the long riders you could could do a lot worse oh check it out there's three carradines in it yes that's right carradines yes oh christopher guest is in that Dude, there is a lot of people in that movie. It is it is a very underappreciated western. Lynch. Maybe maybe westerns weren't very popular in 1980, but uh, looking watching it now uh, over the years, anyway, I, I I love it more and more every time I watch it. It is such a great underrated film. Yeah, that that it's a hell of a cast. James and Stacy Keach, James Remar mm-hmm. is bouncing around in that thing, yep. which makes sense. It's a Walter Hill movie and. Yeah, <laughs> you know James Remar is a a a staple of Walter Hill films. Uh, Ajax. <laughs> oh man, 
<laughs> he's such a jerk in that movie. Yeah, uh, right? Oh, he's such a scumbag. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, his fate is the best. Just getting handcuffed to a police yep. bench and <laughs> left to go about his business. If, if you don't know what we're talking about, people, you need to get your eyes on The Warriors, which is a mm. terrific film. Mm. Um, can you dig it? Um, I mean, it's almost required viewing. It really is. It's one of those yep. movies, like, if you want to understand... 80 cinema the, like the Warriors wasn't super popular at it at the time of its release but it was incredibly influential yep. and and it's still an amazing movie when you watch it now and don't get the director's cut with no, the animated no. stuff watch the, the original theatrical cut of that movie and it's all like I wonder if George Miller was like alright I need to do another Mad Max movie what if I just do the Warriors with, uh, you know, women escaping from Immortan Joe? Because it's essentially the same thing. It's like, we're going to go to a place, find out that things are fucked up, and then we're going to go home. And that's the whole movie. Uh, but it's... Yeah, uh, loosely, loosely based on the story of the 300 Spartans. Yeah, very, yes, very loosely based. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but that opening... Uh, the, the whole opening speech about like you know here's how many people uh, are in gangs here's how many police there are you know we outnumber them 20 to 1 we can carve up this city for ourselves it's so good and uh, I'm gonna forget his name the the uh, is it James Patrick Kelly is that his name the the guy who you know notably is the one who says warriors come out and play yay Oh right, yeah, he was on Twin Peaks too. I that, yeah, that he was he, he was in The Crow. He was the guy, you know. There's no coming back. There's no coming back. Like that guy, he plays such a wonderful shit heel, and he is creepy and wonderful and crazy in The Warriors. It's so good. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, yet, <laughs> you got to watch The Warriors. Um, David Patrick Kelly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I was so close. Um. Anyway, so that's a cast, totally solid cast. Um, here, here we get into maybe the briefest topic of the evening, which is the themes of the film. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. Believe, believe your local legends. Uh. I yeah, right. <laughs> like what? Okay, so. I've been reading Men, Women, and Chainsaws recently. Mm -hmm. And so for lack of the movie itself having like a lot of subtext, I will sort of, you know, paraphrase what uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws has to say about slasher heroines, notably Marty, who is uh, Linda Blair's character in this movie. And is name-checked in that book a number of times and is used as an example of the slasher heroine. And I'll bring this up and then, you know, respond to it however you want. I There are things I agree with in Men, Women, and Chainsaws. There are things I don't agree with. But I like reading kind of critical thought about horror films because I spend so much time watching them. I want to feel like I'm not wasting that time. <laughs> and, and you know, somebody smart being like, no, 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 there's actually, you know, some interesting, uh, like, gender dynamics and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in 
Hell Knight in particular, Marty is, uh, is, is representative of a couple of things. One, there is this sort of, as the final girl becomes the final girl, you know, becomes uh, a character that can stand up for herself and so forth, that even from the beginning, there's sort of a blurring of the feminine and the masculine with the character because Marty, first of all, her name is Marty, which is a kind of an androgynous name. Yeah. But she, uh, she doesn't like using her real name, which is Martha. Uh, you will not see that anywhere in the movie or anywhere in any of the credits. I had to go digging through a uh, copy of the original script to actually find Martha Gaines in there. Yeah. <laughs> go figure. And there's the, the bit about her uh, being a mechanic. And, and it's basically subverting the idea of what is typically feminine. And so... By the end of the movie, you know, she's she is doing taking on the rather masculine role of being the hero, or at least a role that is traditionally masculine in action movies and dramas and, and in most most films of the time, you know, the, the man was the hero, and that's one of the things that makes slashers kind of unusual. But it's not just that she is a purely feminine character who is the, the hero of the movie she is a female character that has decidedly masculine traits and so that she's not purely feminine that she's more androgynous um but that allows the male viewer because horror movies are mostly watched by men you know statistically speaking that that allows the male viewer to both identify with her and and root for her because there is an element of the familiar in that character that if she were a purely feminine character she would be less relatable it is part of the point of uh, men women and chainsaws or or just that because we need our heroes to behave a certain way and that way is traditionally masculine you have to kind of blend the feminine and masculine into your heroic character mm. I mean, I guess I mildly agree. Ultimately, though, a, a final girl, no matter how feminine she is, is killing someone at the end of the film. She is killing the, you know, the antagonist of the film. Killing in and of itself is a macho, you know, masculine activity. Mm -hmm. You know, women, even though there have been plenty of female serial killers over the years and female soldiers and everything else, it's still kind of considered a, you know, kind of a male-centric thing to kill another human being. So... I mean, even though they make a point of, you know, saying that she, you know, maybe doesn't come from the most privileged background and that she actually is, you know, a child of a mechanic, I personally never really saw that as uh, making her more masculine. If, if anything, I, I found her more attractive because of it, yeah. you know, I mean, because there's something to be said about a woman who looks like a model, but then is also handy. You know, that, there's a lot to be said about a woman like that. and uh... yeah, For sure. Yeah, <laughs> Carol Clover, who who wrote the book, and, you know, Men, Women, and Chainsaws is about 30 years old at this point, a little over 30 years old, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And I think Carol Clover admits now that, like, a lot of the stereotypes used and a lot of the Freudian thinking of Men, Women, and Chainsaws is a little outdated at this point. And might have even been a little simplistic even then. Because, like, she's very clearly cherry-picking 
some like characters in movies to sort of make her larger point. But it, yep. I don't say that to dismiss everything that she says. Sure. It's just that, you know, I, it, like I said, I find it interesting to read a critical academic study of horror films, even sure. if I don't necessarily agree that like, oh, every conclusion is right. But it, you know, I, I'm a believer in that argument that like, oh, if you if you are able to argue your point um, or hearing a differing point of view, it, it helps you kind of crystallize your thoughts about a thing to some degree. Um, sure. But I, I agree with you, though, that I think most guys, if you if if they're being honest, will tell you that, oh, yeah, I mean, we all want somebody somebody that's attractive like that's just, you know, being an animal is wanting an attractive mate but that only goes so far and at the end of the day you want somebody that's kind of cool <laughs> and I, and i would imagine I, I would imagine this author probably wrote the book thinking about men of a certain age watching these movies you know because how often are you going to talk about 50 year old men watching slashers no you're, you're talking about guys in their 20s maybe even younger you know, sneaking into a theater or, or, or in my case, watching this with an older cousin or whatever. But yeah, she's definitely not thinking about the older men that potentially could be watching these movies. And you yeah, know, I know that I, I know that's not the norm. So so I, I'm not going to argue necessarily with the points that she made. But at the same time, I would have to question how big was her segment of people that she interviewed or researched or whatever. You know. So. Yeah, it was a lot of like there was a sample taken from uh, one town and then also some kind of apocryphal stories as well of, you know, mm -hmm. people that worked in video stores of like, okay, well, you know, let me ask somebody who works at a video store who is renting these movies sure. and that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, it's still, you know, and, and by no means am I suggesting that Carol Clover is, you know, bad mouthing horror movies. In fact, like she admits early on in the book, like I'm, I actually became a fan of these movies, but it's really interesting to think about them in terms of gender. Even if, like I said, I think some of it's a little simplistic, um, but it's interesting. And uh, for lack of anything else to talk about thematically with Hell Knight, <laughs> I tried to bring it up because uh, I happen to be reading it right now. And then you know, I'll when uh uh i finally get around to talk about poltergeist i'll bring it up again and talk about her views of possession films um <laughs> but um anyway i mean i don't want to steal any thunder anything else that you think of that is critical to a thematic discussion of this film oh god not really no i mean <laughs> bowing to peer pressure maybe i don't know yeah i mean because you know, we, we, it's Hell Night, so it's obviously a kind of a collegiate rite of passage, if you will. So, um, you know, the, 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 I get. I mean, if you really, really dig deep, 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 you could kind of pull out some stuff about peer pressure and societal pressure and things like that. But I mean, it, it, it's going to be a pretty minor conversation, regardless. Fair enough. All right, let's get to the meat of this then, and let's talk about final thoughts and a rating. Uh, as always, it's a five-star scale. Uh, we do allow half stars here, no quarter stars because we're not monsters. Um, so uh, take it away. Like, what? What? Is, where do you land with this movie at the end of the day? 
Okay, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, um, this is an absolute guilty pleasure for me. It is an imperfect film. I, I can see that as an adult. I may have missed it as a 12-year-old watching it for the first time, but now I can definitely see its imperfections. I mean, hell, you can see the you can see a boom mic in the scene where uh, Seth is, um, you know, emulating surf surfing in the bed. <laughs> the boom mic actually enters the shot briefly there. So I mean, that you know, stuff like that tells you, you know, what kind of budget these people are working with, what kind of experience these people had. Because I think this director, this was only like his second feature, uh, non-adult video feature, of course. Um, which that was a point I kind of wanted to make earlier too that. This director comes from adult film, and yet this is like the cleanest horror movie when it comes to sexuality I've ever seen. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, yeah, and isn't a lot of hold on. Let me let me double check my math on this. But if memory serves, it's a lot of gay porn. Oh, was it? I didn't actually research it that deeply, and uh, maybe I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> let, hold on, right, keep going, and I I will confirm or deny. Okay. So yeah, as I said, I mean, this movie is an imperfect film, but if you watch it, you know, at the right time under the right mindset, it might resonate with you. You might end up hating it too, ultimately. And anybody who says this movie is like just a piece of garbage, I'm not going to argue with them. I'm not going to try to convince them that, oh no, there's merits here that you're just not seeing. Ultimately, I saw this movie at the right time. It resonated with me. I've loved it ever since. So I've been watching this movie for what, over four, 41 years now. I've been watching this film and still love it. I was one of, I was first in line to get that Scream Factory Collector's Edition when it was released. I, 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 I can't say enough positive things about the film, even though most people may not agree with me. Ultimately, um, nothing about the movie is really exceptional. I mean, I guess you could make an argument for the set design. Um, but, you know, for the most part, you know, it's a fairly forgettable score. Um, you know, the, the acting is okay to good at best. Um, even some of the editing is kind of choppy. I'm not sure if it was because of the transfer. For those who don't know, when you buy... When you get that Scream Factory Collector's Edition Blu-ray of this, there's actually a little bit of a PSA before the film starts letting you know that they weren't able to find a good um, original transfer of the film. That uh, Basically, that what we're holding in our hands here is just a copy of a work, uh, not even a work print, of a print that actually went out to theaters. So it's basically a theater print that was probably played Lord knows how many times, depending on how long it played in theaters. And you can kind of tell there's a couple of scenes in here with some tearing. You've got some lines going, uh, you know, horizontally top to bottom across the screen. Um, you've got some wobbly audio at times. I know at times it's intentional, but at other times it just it just doesn't sound intentional. It sounds like there's a little bit of just, uh, you know, because back then they were putting their audio. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks, I'm bringing a lot of like film lab stuff because I actually have worked in the industry. So in the 80s, most audio was recorded on quarter inch tape. So you've got like quarter inch tape reels that you're trying to mix this audio from. So I can imagine that the task of remastering this was a very daunting task for the folks at Scream Factory. Um but unfortunately, like I said, you're not getting that beautiful transfer that we always wanted. It's still probably the best the film has ever looked, but, you know, it's it's not a 4K UHD by any stretch of the imagination. Anyway, back to the film. Um, an imperfect film that tickles me every time, but because I have a little bit of a history watching Vince Van Patten on poker television shows, it, it kind of, you know, adds a little bit of extra guilty pleasure for me getting to see this guy that I now know 
as a fairly, you know, well-spoken debonair adult, but to see him here as like a California surfer is, you know, it's fairly entertaining. Um, though I do want to try to be as objective as possible with my rating. Ultimately, you know, if I was rating this on guilty pleasure, it's a five out of five. I just love this film. I, I could watch it any day of the week. I could I could take any scene separate from the film and just watch that and walk away content. But I also understand that it is imperfect, and a lot of people have had problems with it over the years. So, to trying to be as objective as I possibly can, balancing my cinephile eyes along with my, you know, uh, just guilty pleasure love and of course you know i'm kind of biased because of linda blair as i said she was my first horror crush um we are she's she's what she's like 10 years older than me so yeah when i saw her in the exorcist at about 10 or 11 years old i fell in love and that has never gone away i actually met her a couple of years ago right before the pandemic at monster palooza out here in, in pasadena uh, I met her as a 59-year-old, and my friends, I am still in love with her. Um, so nothing has changed, and I, I like that. So I'm going to come in with a respectable 3.5 out of 5. Like I said, just trying to balance being objective and absolutely adoring this film, you know, as a, um, you know, kind of a, I, I wouldn't even say gore hound, but slasher hound, especially in the 80s. Like, I'm not as into slashers today. It's not a, a subgenre that I gravitate towards, but in the 80s, slashers were king. And this was just one of many that, you know, turned me into the horror hound that I am now. So, yeah, uh, I'll stop rambling. 3.5 out of 5. Excellent. All right. Well, let's do a little bit of fact checking here. Tom DeSimone, director of Hell Knight, did in fact do a number of uh, gay porn movies featuring titles like How to Make a Homo Movie. <laughs> Confessions of What's a... that about? Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, Confessions of a Male Groupie. Uh, there's Eroticus, a history of the gay movie. Uh, one of my favorite, Sons of Satan. Uh, really? That's a gay porn. Fun. Yeah, uh, the, the synopsis of that is a man searching for his brother finds that he has joined a cult of devil-worshipping gay vampires. Oh. You know. Uh, How's that not a cult classic? <laughs> right. My all right, my actual favorite title for his uh, erotic uh, oeuvre is Six Card Stud," and I don't, I don't think you need a, a synopsis for that one to know what you're getting. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I come down in, in very similar to you. Like I said, the upfront, the, this movie means a lot to me in a lot of ways. I credit this movie with inspiring me to write. Because I got so enamored with some of the ideas in the movie that I was like, I've got to figure out how to write what I'm thinking about in my head about this movie. And uh, I owe the movie uh, quite a bit for that. I, I, I saw it early and it, 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 it mattered to me. And I do think that all the gothic stuff looks really good. I think the fact that, you know, there's sort of this costume party vibe to the whole thing. Uh, makes it a little bit more than, say, a Friday the 13th 3, where it's just like, okay, here's some more campers, and here's some more deaths, and oh, by the way, there's some 3D. Um, this seems interesting. It's trying to do something with it. I don't think it's always successful uh, watching it now. Uh, same kind of caveat supply about the 
the Screen Factory edition, which I think is great and it's loaded with features and I enjoy the commentary and all that stuff. But the movie still only looks so good, uh, despite the fact that I do like a lot of the the cinematography in it. Um, by the way, a guy named Mac Alberg uh, did the cinematography, who was also the cinematographer on Reanimator. Mm-hmm. And from behind, from beyond, so did some uh, uh, Stuart Gordon stuff that I like a whole lot. Um, so, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, I land in the same place ratings wise, where I'm like, you know, as a hometown favorite, it's it's like a four four and a half star movie. Realistically, it's like eh, it's a, like three and a half. Like I still recommend it to people if you've never seen it. It's there there's a real goofy charm to the movie and and also the violence with which uh the killer dies at the end of this movie still kind of freaks me out like it's a really good you mm-hmm. know like thrashing on the end of a spike that i, I find <laughs> somewhat disturbing so um yeah it's it's not good but it's kind of great <laughs> perfect way to put it (laughs) um all right well before i cut you loose it is time to uh to to look at three things that you may not know about uh this here movie um hell night and you probably know this stuff because (laughs) you do research like i do but uh i like this stuff so uh as you pointed pointed out uh one of the uh, the Garce, there were uh, two guys named Valentino Richardson and Chad Butler. Um, they are they were both German uh, who spoke little to no English, and that uh, as, as pointed out, uh, one of them died. Um, you know, in between this movie being finished and being released, um, but I think it's interesting that not only are they completely uncredited in this movie um, that you, like you said, you have to dig to find the names of them at all. Uh, But uh, we believe it is Valentino Richardson and Chad Butler. So, you know, (laughs) maybe that's who was in this movie, which is also, I think I kind of like that. There is no sure way to tell. Um, So, uh, Vince Van, P- Van Patten uh, has made a claim that Kevin Costner was a grip on this movie. Now, he does not appear in the credits anywhere, uh, but that is the rumor, and I choose to believe it. <laughs> and one of the reasons I choose to believe it is because Frank Darabont of Green Mile fame was also a production assistant on this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention, and this is just a, a catch-all for people that you may not have realized were involved with this movie. One of the producers was uh, Chuck Russell. The, I think it's his first executive producer credit. And uh, Chuck Russell, of course, went on to do uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Um, he directed the Blob remake, which is fantastic. He did The Mask. He did Eraser, which is not very good. 
but I mean, he's been around making movies forever and ever and ever. Has written a bunch of stuff, directed a bunch of stuff, and this was one of his early, early roles, or uh, as a uh, behind-the-scenes kind of cast, uh, not cast, but um, crew uh, in executive producing this movie. Um, also pointing out Dan Wyman, who did the music for this movie, who was composer on this movie, was composer on a movie called Without Warning that I have a lot of time for. <laughs> uh, flying Barbed Vaginas. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> that movie is ridiculous, and uh, but but terrific actors in it. Yeah, another movie that doesn't deserve the cast it has. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Like, there are Oscar award winners in that movie. Yes. And, and that is not correct. Um, but he, so he also did, uh, in addition to Without Warning and Hell Knight, also did the soundtrack to The Lawnmower Man. Yeah, I'll forgive him. Sure. But the thing <laughs> I find interesting about. Uh, about him as a, a musician is he worked under John Carpenter. That's where he kind of cut his teeth uh, doing Halloween and the fog um, with Carpenter. And so when you listen to the soundtrack to Hell Knight, you can hear that John Carpenter influence. Absolutely. There's multiple scenes with some dark synth uh, playing in the background. Yeah. And even some like music stings that mm -hmm. are very Carpenter-esque. It's really interesting. Um, and then the last thing after that catch all of here's a bunch of people that were involved in this movie. Um, the, the guy who played Peter, uh, in the movie, Kevin Brophy said that, uh, the purple cape that he wore in this film, um, <laughs> he still got it and says that he has worn it every ding dong Halloween since making hell night. <laughs> Uh, things got to be in terrible shape. <laughs> Probably so, but I uh, I respect it. I like oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, man, look, it is always a delight. It has been far, far too long. We will not we will not let this much time pass again. Yes, definitely. Uh, but I, I thank you so much, and, and more importantly, um, where can people hear more out of you as they will likely want to do? All right. Well, my main home is the No More Room in Hell uh, feed. Basically, if you subscribe to the No More Room in Hell feed, you will get all three of my shows. They are, uh, of course, the main show, No More Room in Hell, which is a bi-monthly um, kind of... Uh, we try not to do like the most commonplace horror films in there. We try to pull some you know oddball stuff out there like you know if you want to hear a review of nightmare on elm street we're not the place to go but if you want to hear a review of a 1970 czechoslovakian horror film <laughs> called valerie and her week of wonders then we're the show for you so yeah check us out there on the dark discussions podcast network and and then the other two shows under the same banner are no more room in hell presents fresh cuts that is our weekly show where we review the newest releases in the genre our latest episode covers the latest release from Shudder called Night's End. It is a supernatural haunted house film that has a kind of a, uh, a social media tinge to it for those who haven't seen it. So yeah. and it's um, it currently silly. available. It's a, it's it's yeah, it, it's kind of a I hate to say it, but it's it's kind of a subpar version of 2020's host. If anybody remembers that film also from Shudder. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind. Of, it's you know, I'm not gonna say it's like not worth your time at all, but I mean, if you like supernatural stuff, 
and you like some cheesy effects and cheesy creature design, yeah, check it out. It, it, it's not the worst thing you've ever seen. I, and then the final show. Oh, go ahead. No, I just because I haven't talked to anybody else who's seen this movie yet, and I got to get this uh-huh. off my chest. I I felt like there was a weird tonal shift in that movie, where oh, yeah. like the front end of it, I was like, oh, this is this kind of somber haunted house like the guy's got social anxiety and all this stuff is going on and you know sort of reflective of the pandemic and etc etc and then all of a sudden it just gets super goofy (laughs) and i was like i i've got whiplash i was not ready for this this turn yeah it definitely does a a malignant type tonal change where you know for the first two acts it's one movie and then for the third act, it's like something completely different that you weren't expecting. But, you know, sometimes it's a good thing, as in Malignant. And sometimes it's not so great. But uh, I'll let you guys make the decision on Night Ends. Um, ultimately, I didn't hate the film. Um, I just feel like if 2020's host wasn't a thing, I might have liked this one a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, but I, I just I had to stop you there. No, no, not at all. Uh, And then the third show um, in the family is No More Room in Hell presents Creature Comforts. That is the newest show in the family. That is, of course, a creature feature review. That is a monthly show that I do with Mr. Don and Nelly from the Horror Countdown podcast and Mr. Derek B. from the Cinema Attack show. Um, And funny that we get to this point. Segway. Um, on our next episode, which will be episode eight, your your uh, illustrious host of the Dark Parade, Mr. Bo Ransdell, will be joining us as we review The Relic, um, which I haven't watched since it was released, and I don't even remember what I thought of it when I watched it. So this is practically going to be a, a first-time watch for me. I know I saw it in theaters, but I just I can't remember for the life of me what I thought of it walking out of the theater. So. Yeah. which may be a good sign or may not be a good sign. We'll have to see. But yeah, uh, we'll be checking that out. So look for that. I believe uh, we'll be recording at the end of this month. Uh, episode will probably be out last week of April or maybe within the first couple of days of May. Once again, all those can be heard on the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. And unfortunately, most of my other shows are on extended hiatus right now. Um in the Mic of Madness is on hiatus because my co-host is actually a presence in the independent film industry. Um, she produces, writes, and directs uh, films. She's currently promoting her latest film called uh, Tin Roof. Um, and that is uh, Rebecca Reinhardt, of course, for anybody who listens to that show. So um, that's one that's on an hi- extended hiatus. Uh, my other show that's on an extended hiatus, and this one kind of breaks my heart a little bit more, is Underwater Kaiju from Outer Space that we do um, with Mr. Jerry Herring from the from Kill the Cast right here on the Legion Podcast Network. Um, unfortunately, you know, Jerry's had some life situations occur, and we have not been able to put an episode together in, you know, close to 10 months now, it seems. Um so yeah, hopefully, fingers crossed, that'll be back sooner than later. Anyone who knows me knows how much I love my kaiju films, Godzilla, Gamera. I mean, I could I could talk about them for days on end. So that's that's the one hiatus that's kind of been breaking my heart lately. But obviously, we I, I now have creature features to kind of fill in that, or creature comforts, excuse me, uh, to kind of fill in that gap. But out of respect to Jerry, we are avoiding kaiju films on that show. 
until underwater kaiju is officially dead if that ever happens then you'll start seeing us review kaiju films on creature comforts because I mean, that was part of the reason i created the show to begin with um but yeah so uh unfortunately you're not going to hear me on you know 11 different podcasts anymore um on top of the fact that I have a new job that I was talking to Bo about, you know, uh, before we started recording, that's taking up a lot of my time. Hence why we had to record this episode a little bit later than we normally would. But um, yeah, so I'm still I'm still trying to plug away at podcasting while still trying to build my career and still trying to get as much poker in as possible. Anybody who knows me knows I am a voracious poker player. So um, and that's about it for me, Bo. Well, that doesn't sound like nearly enough. Um, so we'll we'll do this again real soon. Uh, I, in fact, I'll I'll, t- I'll talk to you offline about this, but uh, I, I think I got something to, to tempt you. Um, nice. All right, uh, I'll I'll shut up uh, at this moment, and so listeners, uh, stick around because then I'll be not shutting up in just a second to close the show. And that is, of course, my conversation with Venom about hell Knight, i hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed it i had a great time talking about that movie with him that movie is strangely important to me uh but it is no use to look backwards it is time to look ahead uh into may and see what awaits us there may is going to be a month where we talk about movies that uh exist above and below the waves uh, i'm not exactly sure what to call it, usually about halfway through the month, I realize, oh, there's a, a good pithy name for this thing that I'm doing. and and But then I forget all about it. So, <laughs> uh, for now, it is just uh, Aquatic Horrors, something like that. If you have a suggestion, let me know. Um, speaking of letting me know, you can always hit me up uh, on Twitter. I'm at Dark Parade Pod. Uh, over on Facebook, there's a Facebook group for... Uh, the Dark Parade, if you just search for the Dark the dark Parade under groups, you'll find it there. Or you can just email me. Um, and you can do that at Bo, that is B-O at legionpodcasts.com. Uh, if you have comments, concerns, uh, I'm not on the other social media channels with any kind of regularity, so it would just be unfair to tell you to contact me there. Or if you want, I'm going to try to remember to start including the Discord server in the notes. So if you look at the show notes and use Discord, you can find me there. And Discord, I'm on all the time because of work and any uh, number of other reasons. Uh, it's just the one I, I tend to use the most. So that'll do it for this month of Slashers. We've got the, the Aquatic Horrors ahead, starting uh, with Orca, the Killer Well. And we are going to be bringing on a, uh, a new guest host for that one. So I'm very excited about that as well. Uh, next month is going to be a lot of fun. A lot of different guests, a lot of different movies, different kinds of movies. Uh, there, there's a real wild card in the mix, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about that, as well as some personal favorites of mine. So it's going to be a great time. Always uh, more Heart of Horror with Kay Pollock, more What You Watching with Jamie and Bo, more Found Footage Fool. And uh, as I've threatened before... Um, I'm getting ever closer to having the time to really dig in to uh, do some kind of interesting side project stuff. And so probably that is going to begin rolling out in June. So keep an eye out for that. Um, That is it for this time. I appreciate you rating and reviewing where that is possible. That uh, helps a lot. If you listen to this over on YouTube, uh, which is youtube.com 
forward slash Legion Podcasts. Uh, be sure you, you click the thumbs up on the video. That helps uh, visibility as well. And as always, thank you for joining the Dark Parade. We'll see you next time.